Well, you can remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians as our evening series through Paul's uh, wonderful brief letter to the church at Philippi continues. Tonight we want to look at verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. And kids, I would tell you that what we're going to study tonight, as I trust you'll soon discover, is one of the clearest teachings about our Lord Jesus Christ that you can find in all of the Bible. And yet even in a short compass of a few verses, we find an expansive amount of of truth and wonder about our Lord. So let me read those verses for us and pray and we'll continue on. So listen now as once again, the Lord does speak to you through his word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we have a simple prayer and plea this night that like those men of old, that we would see Jesus, that you would show us his beauty and his glory, and we pray it in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Earlier this afternoon, I was reading about the life of an old English preacher, an English preacher that has largely been lost to history. His name was Archibald G. Brown. So famous, however, was he in his own time that he was known throughout the land by his initials, A.G.B. He grew up at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He was not converted under the ministry of Charles Spurgeon, but he was certainly trained under Spurgeon, eventually became something of a ministerial friend to that great prince of preachers in England. Uh, Brown himself eventually pastored a megachurch in the east area of London. And by the time Spurgeon died, uh, Brown became something of a preaching successor in the land to Spurgeon. It was said of Brown that he belonged to this school of preaching that was all blood, love, and power. It was like they were modern day, he and his friends, sons of thunder, that the Lord Jesus referred to a few of his disciples. Apostles and disciples as. Well, there's one day when Brown was talking to a friend of his, and they were chatting about the kinds of sermons that seemed to be most blessed and beneficial. And his friend says, oh, I know what kind of sermons those are. And Brown said, well, what kind of sermons are you talking about? And his friend said, simple sermons. And I suppose it's even a good question you could entertain yourself with tonight with a church member after the service or sometime later this week. What are those sermons that seem to be uniquely blessed and beneficial to God's people? So Brown's friend said, simple sermons. And Brown said, well, what do you mean by simple sermons? And his friend simply replied, a sermon, that's all about 
the Lord Jesus. And I trust that you would agree with me, certainly if you know your church history well, but even better, you know your Bible well, it seems quite true that the sermons most blessed and beneficial to God's people are ones that are simply all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that criteria is true, what we have in front of us in our text is one of the simplest, yet again, one of the most expansive collection of truths that you'll find in the New Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you want to remember, if you have been away with us, uh, from us in recent weeks, that of course, this exalted passage on the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't come in a vacuum. It actually uh, continues a train of thought in a logical flow from the Apostle Paul that goes all the way back to the end of chapter 1. Because you might remember the book began with this uh, long series of sentences and a number of paragraphs where Paul spoke about his love for the Philippians, their partnership in the gospel, the way he was praying for them, even the nature of his own ministry in prison, how it was really serving to advance the gospel. And then finally, in verse 27 of chapter 1, he turned his attention to the Philippians. And if you glance back up to that passage, you remember how it begins. We said this was something of like a masthead thesis for the entire book. He said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, We said in Paul's own way, that was the apostle saying, this one thing and this one thing only, Philippians, ought to occupy your attention. Being citizens of heaven, being worthy members of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice as verse 27 continues, Paul says one of the natural fruits of that worthiness of Christ is found in unity in the church. As he went on to say that He wanted to see the Philippians striving firm in one spirit and with one mind. And then we notice how last week in the first four verses of chapter 2, that emphasis on unity returned, and it certainly was reiterated. If you notice verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul said to the Philippians, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So, Christians worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, are most naturally seen when they are living in unity. And then what he begins to do, last week's text and tonight's text, because they're so linked, as he says, that kind of godly unity, it only grows as individuals are growing in humility, which is why, of course, he said in verse 4, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So again, follow the, the train of Paul's logic to this point in our text. You must... Have your central preoccupation as a church be nothing more than being worthy, found worthy, counted worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to see that as you walk in unity, and you're only going to walk in unity as you live in humility. And then, of course, the logic picks up in verse 5, the first verse of our text. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So that mind of humility Uh, Paul says, is, of course, most preeminently found in in Jesus Christ. And so, students, you want to recognize that when you uh, come to this passage, you do come to uh, the lofty heights of what we might say is the Christology of the New Testament. It's why a number of commentators would say things like this. One says, here we tread on this very holy ground. We would do well to remember that this privilege is given to us not to satisfy our curiosity, but to reform our lives. Another says that this passage 
should cause the reader to soar. And I think that's quite true. You're coming to a summit of Christology and spirituality, but in a paradoxical way, what the text is wanting us to do is not as much soar up as much as soar down. Soar down ever further into meekness and lowliness and humility. And students recognize that in the Apostle Paul's mind, what he wants to do is pull on some of that most expansive and exalted truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. We might say some of the richest theology and doctrine of Christ you can find in all the New Testament. And his principal purpose in doing it is that you would be humble before the Lord. I hope you recognize that when you study those deep doctrines of our truth, they are meant to help you soar. Yes, of course, soar up in glory and beauty and adoration and worship, but also soar downward and humility before the Lord alone who is exalted. So depending on the Bible that's in front of you, it might have this text in verse 5 through 11 offset from the normal left margin. It's in its own way illustrative of why so many Christians throughout the centuries have thought this is something of an early church hymn, uh, the nature of the words and the phrases in in chapter 2. And whether it is or not is really beside our interest tonight, but it has two distinct stanzas. It has two distinct halves. Uh, I want to uh, bring out our theme about the humility of Jesus Christ by first showing you what what theologians have long called the two states of Christ. We'll see, first of all, Christ Jesus' humiliation And then we'll notice verse 9 through 11, Christ Jesus' exaltation. So again, verse 5, he begins by reminding us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, now, if you pause right there, you need to recognize that uh, this passage is duly famous for a variety of different reasons, uh, one of which is throughout church history, it's often been misunderstood. It's called more than a few people to venture and veer into error and falsehood along the way. And some of the challenge can belong to phrases like, though he was in the form of God. Uh, You need to recognize, though, that the language there of form of God, it's not speaking of something like this visible appearance that we often associate with the word form. It's simply an ancient way of saying he was God of, of very God as the creeds in centuries advancing in church history would come to confess. For Paul, the essential point is, notice as verse 6 continues, though he was God of very God. Well, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word there uh, for grasped, it's a notoriously difficult one to uh, fully encapsulate into English. It's why translations kind of render it in all kinds of different ways. It originally was speaking the first century context of Paul to to robbery, to this crime of theft. So it's why even if you have a King James translation at home, it would simply read that Christ Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Or even The NIV translation, I think, gets a good sense of it when it says he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Jesus was not in the business of grabbing and grasping divinity for himself, is what Paul is saying. Uh, Emily and I have had the privilege for the vast majority of our married life to always have at least two little children at home. And some of you can remember those days and Some of you are in those days right now, and some of you might eventually, Lord willing, be in such a time period in your life. And 
And can't you remember, or perhaps it's even a present before your very experience this week, when you have two little children, or perhaps a few more at home, and they're engaged in playtime, uh, that so often the sin of the child's heart reveals itself in what they do with the toys. And what they do with the toys is what? They begin to just hoard all the toys to themselves. Or certainly the ones that they think are the best ones. They just start grabbing and grasping all that which is good only for themselves. And so it was why when our children were younger, Emily tried to uh, poke at the silliness of what is a very real sin uh, by telling them you're, you're not to be like a dragon in grabbing all the toys for yourself. Because kids, you know, don't you? What dragons do, all they do is they hoard the treasure all to themselves. And what Paul is, of course, telling us with the Lord Jesus Christ, part of his humility is that he didn't grasp, he didn't grab divinity for himself. What Paul is trying to tell us is he wasn't about grabbing. The Lord Jesus was about giving himself. And we need not wonder about the nature of his humility because, of course, the text tells us simply what it meant. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men. Now, students, that phrase at the beginning of verse 7 requires us to do something of, of theological arithmetic because what he's talking about by way of emptying himself, people have gone wrong to think that he has emptied himself, if we can use this language reverently, by way of subtraction, as though he somehow laid a portion of his divine nature aside. Well, that's certainly not true because it's certainly not possible for Jesus to do such a thing. So it's not the theology of subtraction that Paul's speaking about here, but actually it's the theology of addition. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God, a very God from eternity past, he has now added to himself what? The body of a servant is what he says. And so do you see how even from the very first page of the gospel story and all the way through the end of all four gospels, what you see, it almost feels like, doesn't it, on every single page and every single paragraph, you have an instance, you have an illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ in his humility. He was the king of kings, not born into a royal palace. Again, if we can say this reverently, but in an animal's dump house. That wasn't the king of kings coming along being clothed with the robes of royalty wrapped up in swaddling cloths. It was the Lord of lords on the night that he was betrayed when he gathered his apostles together, his disciples, that one last time in the upper room. What did he do when he called the meeting to order? He tied a towel around his waist. He bent over with his knee on the ground and he began to wash their feet such was the humility of this servant. As verse 8 goes on to say, in being found in human form, he humbled himself. The language there of humbled himself, it actually was used in the first century to speak of a slave who had lost all his prestige and all his status. And that's exactly, isn't it, what the Lord Jesus did? Taking on a form of a servant, the likeness even of a slave. That sinners like you and me might be saved. And he goes on, verse 8, telling us the true depths of his humility is found in this, that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, kids, if you like to write in your Bibles, you can circle, you can underline that word in verse 8 of 
even. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For of course, it's one thing to say that a Lord would come and die. You might understand that that's not terribly unusual. All kings die. All leaders, Lord continues to tarry, will die. However, it's something completely different in that first century world to say, even death on a cross. Because crucifixion in the first century world of Paul and his Philippian hearers, it was the most shameful way to be executed. It was so full of shame that it was only reserved for the worst criminals, slaves, terrorists, insurrectionists. You might know that nobody in the first century would wear a cross around their neck. Nobody would tattoo a cross upon their shoulder. Nobody would put a cross behind a pulpit. It was an object of the worst shame. No leader worthy of adoration dies on a cross. And what does Paul say? King of kings, the Lord of lords, and God of very God. Even to death on a cross, he humbled himself. He wasn't too proud, was he, to wear our skin, nor was he too proud to bear our sin. It's in his humiliation, isn't it, that we find salvation. So what you need to see in verses 5 through 8 is Christ Jesus' humiliation, and then you'll notice in verse 9 through 11, Christ Jesus' exaltation. I spent my childhood years through the fourth grade living at home in Richardson that was only a few blocks removed from my paternal grandparents. And so we loved to, as we were homeschooled through many of those years, uh, to spend many hours during the week at our Grandma and Grandpa Stone's house. And of course, part of the reason that we loved to be at Grandma and Grandpa Stone's house was because Grandma and Grandpa Stone just thoroughly spoiled the grandkids. And spoiling the Stone family looked like this. You know, we'd walk over to Grandma and Grandpa's house, and we could turn on cartoons in the afternoon. You walk over to Grandma and Grandpa's house, you could open the pantry in the kitchen, and there's a storehouse of candy that we could eat. You could walk over to Grandma and Grandpa's house and play home run derby with Grandma chasing the baseballs out the backyard for hours on in the afternoon. You could walk over to Grandma and Grandpa's house and pull out from their movie library all these VHS tapes that we would plug into the VCR and watch a movie of our choosing. And one of the movies that we actually chose quite often, it's in so many ways seared into my conscience and memory, is Chariots of Fire. Uh, This story of Eric Little, you know, this sprinter who became a missionary and his life story. But there's another main character and sprinter in that story. His name is Harold Abrahams. And he won the Olympic gold medal in the 100-meter sprint in the 1924 Olympics. And as the movie recounts his winning of the gold medal, it cuts to this scene where after the race with the gold medal around his neck, Abrahams is there in the locker room. And he's sitting there in some degree of of stunned silence. And written across his face is this sense of, is this it? Is this all there is? Everything had been building up to this? And don't you think that the Lord's 12 apostles, so many of his followers, on that Saturday after he was crucified, that Saturday when he lay in the grave, you could find them on their rooftop, you could find them within the room, perhaps seated on a chair in their living area, 
head in their hands saying, is this it? We didn't think we were going to follow a Messiah who would be crucified. Really, this is what it was all coming to? A Savior who would die on a cursed tree at Calvary? Of course, what Paul's telling us, isn't he, in verse 9 through 11, is that's not it. That there was not just humiliation that belongs to Jesus Christ, but exaltation. Notice what we're told simply, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God, because of his humble obedience, has exalted Jesus Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to see two things about the Lord's exaltation here. First, as he receives the highest title. Kids, what is that name that is above every name? That is crowned upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually quite clear if you know what Paul is doing here in these three verses. He's doing little more than quoting and iterating on something we find in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22 through 23, where the Lord says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. What is that name placed upon Jesus Christ but the name of Yahweh, the name of God? It's not as though he didn't have that name before, but now it's announced to the universe. For what is the central confession of Christianity but three words? Jesus is Lord. And because of that highest title, the exaltation also belongs to the total honor. You see again, verse 10 simply tells us that the intention of God and the exaltation of his Son and the resounding praise unto his glory is that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Now where... Should every knee bow, children, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's just an ancient way of saying everyone, everywhere must bow before this humiliated, but also exalted Savior. Uh, Do you see something about the glorious humility of Jesus Christ? The Roman Orator Cicero uh, had an interesting perspective on crucifixion. It perhaps underscores the degree of shame that belonged to it when he said in one of his orations, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, even from his eyes, and even from his ears. Such was the shame and scandal that belonged to being crucified. Now remember, Paul is writing to a church in Philippi, a very proud Roman colony. He's writing to citizens in Philippi, very proud Roman citizens, who would originally find much sympathy with Cicero's opinion of shame-filled crucifixion. And here comes Paul and turns it completely upside down, doesn't he? He says to these citizens, these church members, that even in your body, that in your thoughts, with your eyes and with your ears, be full of a Savior who is obedient and humble, even to the point of death on a cross. So I want to show you three simple things as we come to the end tonight. Three further things about the kind of humility 
that Paul calls us to in this section of his wonderful letter. I want you to first realize the presence of humility. For a glance again at verse 5. He simply says, doesn't he, to connect the two sections from last week and this week in our experience, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, he doesn't say which could be yours in Christ Jesus, which would be accurate enough, which might be yours in Christ Jesus, which is also accurate enough, which is right now presently yours in Christ Jesus. The mind of humility. So walk in humility. I wonder if the presence, if the possession of the mind of Christ is even yours tonight. So realize the presence of humility. Secondly, know the posture of humility. Uh, what is humility but a, but a heart bending low, bowing before the Lord? And what's the gospel response in verse 10 and 11? To the exaltation of Jesus Christ, but that every knee everywhere is going to bow before the Lord. And, and do know that is true. Every knee everywhere will bow before the Lord. Uh, the pressing question to all humanity today is not, will you bow before the Lord? Isn't the pressing question actually, even in this room tonight, not will you bow before the Lord, but when will you bow before the Lord? Uh, you can bow now in humility unto your salvation, or there's a time coming when he will make you bow. But it will be a bowing unto your very condemnation in the vindication of his justice. This is a presence and possession of humility. There's, of course, even a posture of humility. And finally, it seems like the right place to end, doesn't it? Love the person of humility. Uh, kids, the Christian life really is that simple. If you know your Bible well, look to Jesus. There's not much more you have to do, if anything, than that. It's as though what Paul so consistently does along with the other New Testament writers when he thinks of any of the graces that belong to our life of walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He'll tell us how to do it or at least he'll tell us what to do and then he'll tell us, well, the way in which you go about doing that is just looking unto Jesus Christ. It's as though is what he's telling us right here is you want to grow in humility. Well, stop and stare and study the Savior. You know, students, some of you might be particularly adept at cramming for final exams or cramming for an exam that's going to show up tomorrow. And do you not know that it should be the Christian's delight every single day to study with that kind of urgency, to study with that kind of vibrancy, the humility of Jesus Christ. Because again, connect the logic. Be humble like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be worthy of the gospel. Be humble like the Lord Jesus Christ. And you do that by beholding the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would indeed grow us <clears throat> in the constancy and the faithfulness of our looking unto your Son. Uh, grow us, we pray, in that lowliness, uh, that meekness that is even ours right now, that the mind of Christ would be ever present in our lives this week. 
And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Let's stand.